0: Hey, Liz, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Arun, so nice to see you.
0: Likewise. So just to kick things off, uh, I obviously know a lot about your background and uh, we we, we chat quite often, but uh, for our guests, can you do a brief introduction of yourself and your work?
1: sure oh my gosh where do i even start it's been a long windy road i guess starting with my degree in philosophy and university of north carolina at chapel hill and uh, the time i was a dual major i wanted to do something at the intersection between something technical and ethics and at the time that was science and so i was in a biology program there um, but i ended up not i did not make it through organic chemistry surprise surprise for me uh, i think in words and not shapes and so um i ended up leaving uh, college and going into a career in software. So uh, about 10 years now, I've been on the business side of a bunch of different AI startups Uh, started out as a customer success manager, and then a project manager and then support and product. And, you know, startups are fun like that, where you get to try on lots of different roles. Um, And so I left uh, as first First AI company I worked for was in the HR space, so we were using language models to try to match job seekers to job posts. And um, at the time, you know, I like to say AI worked equally badly on everybody, and we weren't really worried about things like bias and explainability. This is you know ten years ago or more at this point. Um, but it wasn't until really I got to a computer vision company here in New York City, really, really exciting startup, um, where I took over their annotations pipelines. And of course, AI needs a whole lot of data, and then you need somebody to come in and say, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a duck, right? Uh, classic example. And um, so it seems easy, but it can actually get very, very complicated very quickly. And so we had like teams all over the country all over the world and you know we we saw very quickly how bias and various kinds of bias can show up in models and um create real risks for enterprises and um sort of started to realize that as as amazing as ai was i needed to we all as an industry needed to focus really heavily on these issues um, in order for it to go anywhere without actually creating more harm And so I left that company and I went to work for two very young organizations. Um, I was the first staff member at the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project or STOP, as we call it, uh, which was New York based uh, litigation nonprofit focused on civil liberties at the state and local level here in New York. And then the other one was a model monitoring company, Arthur. Um, so I was you know, number three there, we grew it to 25 people. Um, they're way more than that now. And uh, so it was a really exciting ride until um, just in the past year, I got the amazing opportunity to work with Dr. Roman Chowdhury who really helped to create this market during her time at Accenture and jahao Chen uh, from J.P. Morgan Chase, where he was helping the banks understand uh, ways to make their models not discriminatory and uh, more explainable and things that we really want AI to do. And um, so we decided to create uh, or actually recreate Parity and uh, we've been working on it for about a year and it's been a really exciting and fun wild ride.
0: Awesome, so I, I just wanna start at the beginning there. I mean, uh, obviously it, it, a lot, uh, going on, uh, in, in the bio so much impressive things. But, uh, what I find to be super interesting is, uh, that you have such a mix of different experiences that have led you to the position where you are today as the CEO of a, uh, AI explainability company. And so, um, how do you think your experiences with a non-technical, uh, major and uh your experiences at startups in a variety of uh, different types of roles how do you think that's sort of shaped where you are today
1: yeah it's a good question I, i honestly don't know that i would have come to this issue if I didn't have the background in philosophy that I have. I mean, one of the things I think people mistake philosophy programs for is like, it's, oh, it's non-technical, it's humanities. And like, of course, there's some truth to that. But but there's also, you know, it's where I learned Boolean logic, for instance, like the cornerstone of how all Mm. code is created. And so when I came into the computer industry, um, I immediately sort of saw like the parallels and the ways that you're trying to craft a machine to... Follow rules and reason about the world in different ways. And AI is just a different approach to reasoning about the world. It's not deductive like a computer is that follows instructions, it's predictive or inductive, right? Like it tries to infer things from a large data set. Um, And so in my philosophy classes, we took a class, I forget what the name of the class was called, but I think it was actually, oh no, it was philosophy of science. And I will never forget, you know, me being like a biology nerd come in, I'm like, oh, science is perfect. It's like a guarantee towards truth and learning that that is in no way true. And in fact, induction has its own problems and um, uh, deduction can guarantee truth, but it's really limited in its application. So um, to the real world that is. So uh, yeah, I think one of the most important things about AI is that we aren't seeing enough collaboration among different fields. And the humanities have a lot to say about the ways that models can influence our social context, our our society at large, right? Like, uh, uh, does it make inequality better? Does it make it worse? Can it be trusted to do either? And then what are the circumstances under which we can deploy AI and feel comfortable about its use? Um, uh, I've actually seen a lot of computer scientists sort of reinvent sociology on social media. And it's really, you know, a moment that we can laugh at. But we can also say, like, why isn't there better communication? And um so, Technically I am, yes, non-technical, but I think there's so much need for those viewpoints and especially in the startup industry where a lot of these major innovations get incubated and they, they start out at small companies and then they get acquired by bigger companies. And then before you know it, it's how you get driving directions to get from point A to point B. Um, so, you know, we, we've sort of seen this difference where innovations used to come from the government down into industry and it's sort of reversed now. So um, I've had a front row seat for a lot of these innovations and development of new technologies and testing out like what is the best that state of the art models can do, uh, which has given me, you know, motivation, we'll say very kindly to start speaking out about a lot of these issues and to try to help um, make sure that the field continues to go in a good direction.
0: OK, so uh, in, in the AI space, uh, there's a growing school of thought that, you um, The humanities are going to become more and more important over time because we need to program certain uh, logic into the algorithms that we're programming um, when they have to make philosophical decisions like do we want to. you know, if, for example, with the classic trolley problem, which direction do you take with the trolley? Do you sort of, uh, manually override the natural path of the trolley and, uh, have certain set of consequences, or do you sort of just let the trolley go along, um, the program path and then a certain set of consequences arises. So Do you think that the humanities is going to grow in its influence on artificial intelligence or do you think that those two fields where like software development, AI development are going to remain disparate from the uh, philosophies and the other uh, humanities um, that that.
1: It's a good question. I mean, so the I'll pose one back to you, which is, so are you asking me what, what do I think is going to happen or what should I think, or do I think, what do I think should happen? Because those mm. are very different things. Um,
0: that's, that, that's a good question. I, I would be curious to get both and right. why those two things may not be aligned.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I, I think that there's a lot of evidence that the current, Status quo of the way that software is made in industry, at least, is the most of my experience comes from the you know the the, the private side of things um, are incentivized to work really quickly and to try to ship things and test it on their users, right? And so I'm thinking, of course, of the like classic Zuckerberg lines, "Move fast and break things," which has become really important ethos in uh, Silicon Valley, and I've lived that, and I've lived it for most of my career. Um, you know, when you're talking about sort of like job matching technology that's used by newspapers the risks are very different from computer vision technology that may be diagnosing diseases right in in uh, poorer areas of the world or maybe even trying to catch you know people who might be radicalized by by terrorist rhetoric And, and these are real world problems that we see when you apply this really powerful technology at scale um and so i think I don't see any real clear signals of that slowing down, except that I do see a very large sort of counterforce having evolved just in the last three or four years, maybe more than that, maybe more like five years or so, um, where people who have been studying the impact of technology on society have clear examples of how it's gone wrong and how it's created harm and how it could have been done better and how we could have protected these people you know, who have been hurt uh, from the suffering that they had to undertake, right? Like that they went through. Um, so, I think that the counterforce has had a lot of success on the regulatory side, uh, and especially right now where we have people like Lena Khan at the FTC, and she really deeply understands technology and its impact on society. And we have, um, you know, Alvaro Bedoya, of course, same same body of government, FTC, just got confirmed, and he really cares a lot about how. Uh, surveillance technology impacts people of color and with a background of immigration h- himself and having studied it at Georgetown Law. Uh, he not only has you know, real world experience, but also um, having worked to create reports to talk about this issue at, at a governmental level. And we've seen a lot of proposed reg- regulation and legislation that um, is varying degrees of success, right, like depending on the agency. Uh, we see a lot more appetite for it in some of the federal uh, financial regulators right now. And um, even the uh, EEOC, the employment regulator, came out with new guidance on how to protect uh, people with disabilities from AI-based discrimination. So um, I think what I would love to see is more clarity from the government on what sorts of risk guidelines, guardrails are really necessary. Um, But what I what oh, we're also seeing, and this seems like I'm painting a very bleak picture, right? Like that it's adversarial and that it's everybody against each other. And um, and in some cases that may be partially true, but I do think that I see more of the opposite, which is a drive to collaborate. Um, so we get most of our clients at Parity are people who really care about the issues and they're trying to be proactive and they have powerful technology that they really want to uh, mitigate and minimize the risks that are there. And in order to do that, you need to have people who have studied sociology, who have studied social science to understand what to look for and how to help. Um, so I think we're at a turning point and it's a little unclear the way that things will go, but um, maybe I'll just say one more thing about my own philosophy background just to plug the, the need for it. So, um, you know, uh, philosophy, we, we study deductive logic. And so it's a bunch of if then statements and you're trying to translate what we see in the world into something that we can create an argument and that argument can take our observations and create a conclusion in which truth is guaranteed. Now, the trouble with that is that you're starting with observations, which are of course imperfect and people can disagree. um, But also the language that we use to communicate these concepts, um, it can be two different things to two different people. And so there are different sorts of flavors of deductive logic that you can apply um, to sort of say like, what do you mean when you say the word no? Does no mean never no, or does it mean not this time no? Or what do you mean when you say, you know, You know, and that's just a homophone, but it could mean two very different things in two different, very different moments. And so the goal of AI is in some ways to try to take in human inputs, apply machine thinking to it, and then make a conclusion or of of what the person wants of what they're looking for, what they're trying to say. And so we need to take some of these more complex, like higher order um, forms of logic and apply them. And there's opinion that's involved in that of like, you'll ask one philosopher which one is most appropriate in XY setting, and then, you know, another philosopher in a different setting may disagree. And that's the fun of it, right? Like, that's that's what we're all trying to figure out right now. So these topics of, of AI alignment, trying to infuse artificial intelligence with human values, really are leaning on the, the discipline of philosophy very heavily right now and it's been really interesting to see it all of a sudden become so important now w- why they're not seeking more input from philosophers who are working on this is a little unclear but um but as again i've said that, that 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 tide is turning and we're starting to see some pretty broad adoption of people like ethicists bringing them onto companies and into c-suite you know roles um so we'll see as, as it evolves but i think there's a lot of reason for hope
0: wow yeah, that, that, that's so, so interesting. Uh, it, so going back to where you mentioned that uh, a lot of companies, they adopt the Facebook like approach of move fast and break things. And it's only when they break things that they start to realize the need for certain things that they might not have considered in the past, like more uh, of an emphasis on AI ethics. Do you think it's going to take more of the breaking things to build more of that sort of emphasis or what are some of the more uh, What are some of the other incentives uh, for companies like Parity's customers um, to adopt software like Parity that's going to help them move in a more ethical direction with their AI? Ideally.
1: Yeah. Maybe I'll start with the first part because it's a little bit more upbeat than my second answer. So the first part of your question, the second part of your question was um, like, what what are the motivators? And there are are so many. I think one, first and foremost is, you know, because we are who we are, I think a lot of companies self-select when they come to us. They know that we're going to be authentic, that we're going to give it a real robust review. Obviously, we're pragmatists and we are all in business together. Um, So we're not so idealistic that we are you know, unapproachable in that regard. But at the same time, like we, we mean what we say and we practice it. And that's part of why regulators come to us and ask us for our advice on how they should shape regulations. And we've worked with many. Um, and so the motivations are, first of all, it's a huge brand Fiasco. If you have accidental AI discrimination right now, and we saw that happen to TikTok with um, plus-size Black women in particular, we're seeing you know certain kinds of ads getting their photos marked as um, you know illegal or or prohibited uh, disproportionately. Um, moderation practices typically do disproportionately apply to Black and Brown people, um, but if you think about um, you know the PR nightmare. As a consumer side kind of company, as a B two C company, then you really can't survive the, too many of these disasters. And so maybe if you're Google, you can have enough money to wait it out. But if you're a smaller company, you you know this could be a really huge deal. But um, I think people come to us more because they care, right? And and not just that they care about society, but also that they care about making a repeatable framework for promoting their AI to make sure that as you're creating it, you're reducing risks along the way. And this serves to actually counterintuitive as it may seem, speed up the process of AI adoption because you're not going one step forward and two steps back and having to unwind the models that you put out there that hurt somebody that created a big press story, or even if it didn't, you know, maybe even opened up grounds for a lawsuit. And anti-discrimination laws are already on the books, whether it's AI or a model or just a human being giving out credit card loans, like they're not allowed to discriminate. And um, so new guidance is not new law, but it is coming out to say, like, you do need to pay attention to this, especially here in New York with the first hiring law that applied specifically to AI, um, that it requires an outside audit, um, which is actually a practice that exists already in financial regulations. So, Um, We're seeing a really interesting trend where new regulations are are sort of elaborating on regulations that already exist in other fields. And guess what? Banks are still able to innovate and to use new kinds of models. It's not stopped business entirely. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, counterintuitive as it may seem, that there is a real motivator to move more quickly, but, but deliberately by considering risks up front. Now, the first part of your question was, are we gonna need to see more harms created before we get some movement on these issues? And I think, unfortunately, the answer to that is probably yes. Um, And it's not just that AI is hurting people, it's also giving us a chance to uncover sort of the ways that um, non-AI tools are able to be manipulated by uh, human beings who are of course the ones using these tools to discriminatory ends. And it's uncovering a lot of the holes in our civil liberties and our constitutional rights and our justice system that really need to be addressed on a human level before we can really start applying some of this incredible new anti-discrimination science that has been evolving over the last five years. And so if we think about one of the most visceral applications of AI where everybody has an opinion and we can see, and I think everybody sort of agrees that we shouldn't let facial recognition technology be racist and disproportionately accuse people of color of crimes, right? Like that goes against our values as a country. It should go against everybody's values, whether you're an American or not. Um, But we're having a really hard time finding cases where people were falsely accused. And part of the reason for that is that police officers don't need to record that they have used facial recognition to generate a lead whether or not they have used it. And so that's that's a human process whole. It has nothing to do with this technology, uh, in particular, it has to do with every kind of technology that they might be using that might have flaws. And so Unfortunately, a lot of the times when people are accused of crimes and it could be a small crime, like a, you know, a misdemeanor, one famous example in the Georgetown report I mentioned earlier was somebody stole a beer from a bodega and they ended up getting, you know, bound by a Photoshopped version of a facial recognition database, which that's a whole story. I can go into that if you want a little bit later on. Um, but I think that the, you know, the core of it really was that, um, that, uh, the uh, the the information isn't always available to find whether these people. Now, that said, we have found a couple of examples. So when people do, um, you know, get accused of this minor crime, they often will just settle because they can't afford to stay in jail for X period of time if the charges are light, if the fines are low. Um, a lot of times, you know, especially people in um, marginalized communities are more less likely to try to fight something they don't want to lawyer up and spend the hundreds of dollars per hour that it would take to fight you know a charge if it's good enough to just let it go away. And so unfortunately, you know, there's probably a lot more examples of this happening that we just don't have access to find. We don't know how to find them. And so the couple of examples that we do have serve to prove that, hey, this is possible. It does happen, but we don't really know the scope or the scale of the problem. And I think we're still working on demonstrating and sort of justifying the need for this enhanced risk. In the EU, they, they already know <laughs> they're plowing forward and they're like, we can't afford to have any human rights violations. We all want to regulate AI and we're going to do it quickly. But here in the States, it's definitely progressing a lot more slowly than that.
0: I, I'm curious why that is. Why is Europe just so much more, I guess, operating at such a higher speed compared to the U.S. when it comes to this type of stuff?
1: I don't want to be pithy and say that it's a cultural thing, um, but I do think that they're much better at multilateral negotiating than we are, probably because they've had to become that way. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm not a historian. I won't really speculate on the differences between the EU and the U.S., but um, they're really good at coming up with rules and negotiating them out among very large bodies. And, and you know, we saw that happen pretty immediately with uh, pretty recently with GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is, of course, their EU wide privacy law uh, that actually does apply to uh, U.S. companies as well. Um, But that's a huge, huge piece of regulation that we don't have in the United States. And part of the reason we don't I can just maybe say why we don't have it in the United States. Um, My opinion on that Uh, is that we have too much money in in lobbying. And so big corporations have a lot of incentives to prevent these kinds of regulations from happening because they are going to cost them money. And they have a lot of power here in our system. Not that they don't have power in the EU, of course they do. Um, But I would say they have sort of an outsized... Uh, force here in the U S but that's, anyway, that's my opinion. It's not an official stance of parody or of anybody here at the company that we we've created together, Disclaimed. but um, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm going to say.
0: <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's helpful. I, and, and, uh, you definitely piqued my curiosity with the example you're giving with the Photoshopped, uh, training data set, uh, uh, for facial yeah. recognition. I, I don't, I don't want to derail the conversation too much, but I, I'm, I, I'm curious about that.
1: It's such a it's such a sad story. It's not. um, So basically, you know, they have this bodega, someone comes and steals a beer this is such a minor infraction. And yet, you know, NYPD used their systems with this very grainy sort of black and white photo, most likely I can't, I don't know if it was black and white, but you know, these cameras aren't top of the line. Um, And so they only had like the one image of the guy, um, but they couldn't find him. And so they, they had a witness who said that he looked kind of like Woody Harrelson. And so, but with but with facial hair. And so they actually photoshopped facial hair onto Woody Harrelson's face and used that as a seed image no to search their database to find out who else might look like Woody Harrelson. And then they ended up knocking on this poor guy's door. I don't even remember if he did it or not, but can you imagine? Like celebrity look like facial recognition. They should definitely not be able to do that. I will put my foot down there. Photoshop celebrity photos. Yeah. I draw the line.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's definitely a fair place to draw the line. Uh, wow, that's, that's crazy. Um, yeah, so, so uh, you know, in, in, in the AI bias uh, space, I, I mean, there, there's been a significant amount of progress made to, uh, to try to develop algorithms for identifying biases and for uh, addressing these biases as well and um, that sort of thing. But uh, folks that aren't necessarily in the space, they might be wondering, why are we not at that point yet? where we're just really good at it. Uh, Why are we not at a point where, you know, at this point we're able to type in uh, in natural language uh, and any sort of image that we want, and then Dolly 2 is gonna give us a really great rendering of that image. It's incredible. Um, And I'll I'll see if we can link some examples to uh, Dolly 2 down in the show description, but we've made so much progress in these other arenas and uh, it's very tangible progress. You can see how, Good of a job GPT three is doing and Dolly two are doing, but um, people might be wondering why is there why isn't there like a significant more a sorry, people might be wondering why we haven't achieved a similar level of uh, progress in the space of like AI bias mitigation. Is there an yeah. inherent challenge with improving algorithms to a point where we can just? become really good at it in this space?
1: My goodness, I could answer this question for an hour, probably. Let me let me just start by saying um, one thing that I think people forget about AI is that it's inherently a conservative technology, and I don't mean politically. Uh, when I say conservative, I mean it takes data that it sees and then tries to recreate predictions based only on what it has already seen. And so when you feed into, for instance, job information. Uh, a record of who got promoted through the 1970s is not going to have a whole lot of people of color, a lot of women in it. And, and in order to try to correct that, there are some methods that you can try to balance out, like you know, equal numbers of women and people of color as opposed to your majority group but this is a very sticky issue and in some industries may actually itself be illegal and a form a considered a form of discrimination um whereas like you know maybe women are actually as qualified or maybe you're having to boost some people who weren't as qualified because the society is the one that's unfair and so the data that you produce from an unfair society is also Itself unfair, right? Um, so I think this like mentality of hey, we're gonna create an AI that's so smart that it's gonna be able to outthink a human being on like what's the right job candidate to do to make predictions about humans, which we all struggle with, right? Like to understand what is a real person saying to you. Um, that that's just a fallacy. It's not magic, and and I think that a lot of people have been have fallen victim to the AI hype, especially our friends over at OpenAI are very good about cherry picking results and then showing you all the great things that it does when it works well. So what you don't see are all the things that it doesn't do well, and they don't necessarily draw attention to that. And so I'd like to actually, I'll come back to Dolly since we're talking about it, but um, you know, with regard to like why algorithmic fairness hasn't moved faster, um, I would say first of all, it's moving really fast. We have new conferences all the time coming into the space, new journals. Um, you know, people are, uh, publishing papers. It's already incredibly competitive to get published in fact, or AIES, um, almost as competitive as it it is for NeurIPS, the, the sort of main AI conference of record. Um, and yet there is significant disagreement. And I think part of the reason why there's so much disagreement is because People are just different and there are trade-offs that you have to navigate. So for instance, again, just a typical example, we don't actually work on facial recognition, but it's like one where with the justice system, it provides a pretty good sort of, you know, example that we can use to reason about why this is a challenge. Um, You know, you might be able to tell that, um, you know, certain metrics are connected and in an inverse way. So if you really optimize to, to minimize the number of false positives in a facial recognition case, false positives uh, are people who were recommended as potential criminals, but who actually didn't commit a crime, right? Like half of the equation in society is going to say that we need to make that the top priority. Conversely, you can try to minimize false negatives, which is, hey, the criminal was in your data set, but you missed him or her or this person. And so the other half of the equation, our justice system, our law enforcement officers are gonna argue that that's the way that you structure the algorithm. And it's not that the science can't make it happen in one direction or the other, it absolutely can. But these people disagree. And so it's about trying to find a balance between what those conflicting goals actually are. Um, And so the real trouble comes in when you have uh, a trade-off, because it is the case that you have to choose one to optimize for. You have to really, you can do a little bit for both, but, and there are some new emerging techniques that are coming out with multiple objective optimization. But even then, there are decisions about values that you need to put into the algorithm. Like, do we consider these objectives equally? If not, which one gets more priority? Who gets to decide what that priority is? Is it a pure split 50-50 or is it like, yeah, we'd love to optimize for false positives most of the time, but then the occasional false negative is okay. And then again, who gets to make that decision and how do we reason about that? So I think we have the tools to translate our values into code. The trouble is really just arriving at consensus on what those values that's are. Important. And that's a huge society level problem.
0: <laughs> wow. That was so articulately that, that was very articulate the way you described that. And uh, my next question is, like, who does make these decisions normally? Like, is it normally a unilateral decision from the top down and the executive team is deciding on what is the values that the company wants to align on or is it uh, You know, what what is a more common approach to deciding these values within a company from what you've seen?
1: Oh, man, I've seen it so many ways. We still see a lot of move fast and break things, just ship it and figure it out later. Uh, In which case, usually the teams that are really owning that reasoning are the ones who are responsible for achieving business objectives who maybe want to maximize the it amount of money that your your loan pricing algorithm can create, right? Um, and there's, you know, some value to that. Like the banks need to be open; they need to create revenue, and and the more accurate pricing model is gonna give better deals to people who deserve better deals because it will be able to figure out. And that's one of the trade offs of AI that uh, they're more accurate a lot of times than these blunter instruments of older you know more classical statistical models like logistic regression and the like um and so um you know we see a lot of that but we also see organizations that have a committee and maybe it's at the executive level where you have uh you know the business teams maybe you have a policy team generally policy people aren't compliance per se, but they care about things like optics and things like social good, then you have compliance. And in some industries, there are really clear regulations and really good definition of what you need to do to comply. Um, And in other industries, the assumption is that those regulatory frameworks will look a lot like the existing model regulations that exist in finance. But... You know, going back to what you said earlier about the will we have to see a lot more breakage before we get real regulation? Well, that's exactly what happened after the first economic crisis. You know, the Great Recession in two thousand and eight, um, and that saw you know more guidance and more requirements, and you know some of the strictest model regulation that exists exists in banking, and in banking they actually have a clear requirement that you have three different teams who are all responsible for auditing a model before it can go into production. And they all have different objectives and they all have different strengths and and areas of expertise. And so what we see is models bouncing back and forth between different teams who have different needs, different goals, different objectives. And unfortunately, this process, while it is relatively desirable because of its protective characteristics, it slows down the ability to try new technologies, the ability to experiment, um, you know, with different kinds of regulations that require your algorithms to be explainable, that they aren't discriminatory, and not just in a light-hearted half way, but in a really clear. You need to document all of this because we're going to come in and sit with you, you know, every now and then, just to make sure you're following these laws. Um, so. Wouldn't it be better if we could start this collaborative process from the beginning and rather than make it so adversarial and back and forth and take one step forward and two steps back, instead, wouldn't wouldn't it be better for us to maybe align on what objectives and metrics matter up front? And so that's what we're trying to replace the status quo with, make compliance and explainability and bias a first order concern, rather than something that just happens after the modeling team has gone through all their work to optimize for accuracy What if we were to consider things like fairness and explainability from the very first moment? And that's that's parity. That's our that's our platform.
0: And I I see like a prisoner's dilemma uh, shaking out here where it's a bunch of companies that are maybe all trying to optimize for business objectives. And um, they realize that spending a little bit more uh, of their energy on things like compliance and, and risk mitigation, um, maybe they're considering like the catastrophe situation and that's a guardrail for them, preventing them from going just heads down on, on, on completely just optimizing for the business objectives without any regard for that type of thing. But do you think that the best way to sort of prevent um, organizations from just trying to to do what they can to uh, stay afloat or, or, or to try to win out a specific market. Do you think that regulation is the best way of accomplishing that? I don't, I don't mean for this to be a leading question, but I, I'm genuinely curious how 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 you, how you sort of see it. Like, is, is regulation the best way to sort of keep these organizations in line? Um, or, or do you think that there will be more of an inherent interest in uh, a more sustainable uh, growth of uh, the AI function with regards Mm -hmm. to risk compliance, that that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think just recently, there's been a little bit of backlash to this sort of like idea that regulation is gonna solve everything. Because ultimately, even if we were to regulate the crap out of AI tomorrow, the systems that produce the move fast and break things ethos are still there. They still exist, and they still put unique pressures on startups to grow at all costs, right? Like grow or die. And we hear that phrase often in the media when it portrays people like Uber. Uh, you know, CEOs. You know, watching that docu that, that docu series a little bit earlier. Um, and and it's 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 really true. It's it's true. So like this venture backed reality is. I have seen it um, impact companies in a way that makes them sort of betray their own values and and act in a way that, you know, when everything was fine and you had $30 million in the bank, like you didn't need to worry about that kind of thing. Um, But, you know, it's really hard to compete with big tech with all the data that they have if you're an AI company. And so it's not just the VC market, it's also the oligarchic monopolies that we have, right? And so regulation can address a lot of this, but we're certainly not gonna wanna unwind the core of the US economy (laughs) And totally dismantle right like every big tech company that exists. That wouldn't make any sense. That would hurt us all. You know, in a lot of ways. I'm not saying I'm not anti uh, antitrust. First of all, but um, but just you know, as a broad you know prospect, probably not going to happen. And, and there's good reason for it. Um, however, uh, as you say, um, you know we we are seeing such a great insurgence of interest from a the younger generation they're so inspiring to me our first intern was in high school and she knew she wanted to work on algorithmic fairness i'm like how (laughs) did you know um yeah it was super cool um and she's at berkeley now you know studying these things and um uh and 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 academia there's been a lot of interest from the social sciences and from humanity uh the humanities um and uh so I think the only way out is for us all to work together and we we all need to we need participation from every sector whether it's academia or industry the regulators but most importantly regular people we all should have a say in how algorithms make decisions about our lives and that's you know a noble goal it's one that's really hard to achieve but people like you who are here keeping the conversation going and bringing everybody in on the debate i think that's a really important uh, role to play, and the use of culture and art, and the way that movies are portraying, you know, AI as being amazing in one breath, or like the real risks that that come alongside of it. Like these, these all are equally important, and it's not going to be one person or one branch or one, you know, stakeholder that gets us out of this mess. It's going to be all of us working together and really trying to find common ground and trying to find ways to
0: agree. Love that. And, and when we're having these discussions, when, we ha- when we're having these conversations, how do we have productive conversations around things that we may not be exactly aligned philosophically on? For example, a question that might arise is how much bias is too much bias? How do mm-hmm. we have those types of conversations? Are there tools that can potentially help us have those conversations in a more... I guess, streamlined, organized way, or are there, can we, can we pull some things from the world of, uh, philosophy from the field of philosophy, uh, to help us have these conversations or are they inherently going to, uh, remain gray and we just have to sort of arrive at an acceptable level within that gray that, that we're all sort of happy with, and nobody's just completely happy with.
1: (laughs) Yeah. it's What's that? The definition of a good compromise, right? Nobody's happy. Um, yes. I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think that it has to be that. I think that, um, you know, w- one thing that we're seeing is, first of all, there are so many different types of AI, you know, and so many different applications of it. And some of it, especially when you try to make predictions about the quality of a human, you know, it gets really messy and measurement of these models is also incredibly messy. Like, how do you tell if somebody's happy? Do they tell you that they're happy? Like, to what degree can we trust that? Like, how happy were they? Or like, you know. Anyway, this is just to say that the there are other kinds of AI where you're not predicting on humans, where it actually is pretty good at what it does. And there's like uh, an example would be AlphaGo, and so this is like modern reinforcement learning. It has this very narrow task, very clear instructions. It can only make so many different moves. You can't just crumple up the board and throw it out, right? Like it it's programmed in like what it can and can't do. And then you can fully explore the entire surface of go decisions with reinforcement learning. And so now don't apply reinforcement learning to humans. That's a whole other thing that that's like using humans as as your explicit tip, like running experiments on them. Um, But you can see when you apply it in a different context, it has a completely different set of risks, right? Anyway, I'm talking about reinforcement learning because the progress of this science um, is something that underpins our platform. And w- one of the questions that we try to answer is how much bias is too much bias? Everybody wants a number. Every industry is like, is it 80%? Some some have guidance that says 80% discrimination, you know, 20% discrimination is fine. That's not gonna last, That that's an outdated way that the, the courts have reasoned about things in a moment where they didn't understand very much about statistics. That has evolved. Um, and so companies you know, really want some sort of like guidance from the regulators. But if they were to get it, I'm pretty sure that the regulators would say 0% discrimination is acceptable. And unfortunately, most models are biased. And so the question is, how do you minimize that amount of bias while still maintaining a model that's useful to the business that works, that produces, that makes money, that does what it says it's going to do? And so you, it turns out, can use uh, reinforcement learning to optimize more than one objective, just like we were, th- we were talking about in Go. So w- what if we were instead of trying to say like, you know, make one decision, choose one fairness metric and minimize that, um, instead of aiming for a number like 80% or 20% discrimination, what if we can actually try to find like what is the least amount of discrimination with the most amount of accuracy that's possible for us to achieve with the data that we have. I think that's a better way of reasoning about it. And it's sort of a pragmatic approach to addressing these questions. Um, You know, So I think the science is progressing pretty quickly. um, And as new AI techniques become available, we can actually employ those to try to figure out how to answer some of these other questions. Um, I will say that there's still a lot of just sort of foggy murkiness in our field, but I am starting to see edges and corners are starting to emerge. They're becoming more clear. They're becoming more defined. You gotta remember this field is only maybe six years old and we have a lot of work to do, um, but our ranks are growing really quickly. And so it's been exciting to be a part of it.
0: For anybody that's interested in getting involved in the AI ethics observability explanation, or sorry, for anybody that's interested in getting involved in the AI explainability or AI ethics space, do you have any suggestions for where they can start?
1: Hmm, so many, oh my goodness. Um, so many great books, Algorithms of Oppression, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. Um, there's a really good training course by Rachel Thomas at fast.ai, one of my favorites. I think I actually plugged that last time we spoke, Haroon, but just love her so much. Um, Let's see. There's the FACT Conference. It's the Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency in Machine Learning Conference, F-A-C-C-T. Uh, And so there's so many papers that are not all incredibly technical. Some of them are policy papers. Some of them are about feminist interpretations of machine learning. It's a really fun place to be. So I encourage you, the conference is coming up in June, buy a ticket. They're not that expensive and they offer grants too for students or for young people. I'm sure if you're interested, they'll find a way to make it affordable for you. Um, And so, you know, those papers are a really good starting point. They're kind of what brought me onto this uh, this path. And, um, so that's a really good place to go too. Um, I gosh, we could have a whole podcast about recommendations, but (laughs) of course, everything that Dr. Ruman Chowdhury has ever written, you should go and read that too.
0: Yeah. Great last name too. Um, and we'll make sure to link all of the uh, resources, uh, down below in the description. Um, we'll we'll make sure to link all of the recommendations down below in the descriptions as well. And so I want to end this on a, really high note, Liz. So, uh, obviously with, uh, conversations around ethics and, and technology, it's very natural for the conversations to maybe appear a little bit more gloomy on surface. And, and that's just because it's, it's, it's better. It, the folks that are really shaping the space need to have a uh, pretty realistic and sometimes, uh, skeptical view of where the technology is headed so that they're able to sort of recognize, um, the issues that, that, they are addressing and the things that they're working on and so um, but I'm curious to get your perspective on the things that you're really excited about in the AI space um, obviously AI ethics uh, and and uh, observability I think that those are those are things that are progressing and and we've talked about those um, what are other things that you're excited about applications of AI that uh, you uh, geek out about? Um, I, am curious, like what, what you're finding exciting nowadays.
1: That was a really good question. And, you know, at my core, I am a total AI nerd. I mean, there's just so much cool stuff that it could be doing. Um, I was just reading an article this morning about like, you know, AI for plants, right? Like for conservation, how do we figure out if we can install sensors to predict when plants aren't getting enough light, can we fix that? You know, we're talking about revolutionizing the way that we produce food in in the farmlands. And like, this is technology that can help um, farmers do more with less. So I'm not just thinking about the United States, I'm thinking about all over the world where there are food shortages, um, you know, that's, I mean, that's just, a, it would be a huge move forward. And then thinking about medicine and the way that, you know, AI helped us unfurl proteins, you know, from the genetic code is just absolutely insane. The applications for ending cancer right like I don't like to have a lot of hype but we're actually talking about that like that that's something that AI couldn't you know you couldn't do it without AI maybe you could but it would take you several several lifetimes um, to do and um, and so you know I, and I think a lot of these examples are are not as far off as they seem they're they're in testing now and um, you know as long as we can address these risks, as we move forward with the production of this technology, then um, I think it stands to benefit us and the whole world a whole heck of a lot.
0: That's great. Yeah, we we interviewed uh, Arif Nathu, who's um, the CEO of Komodo Health, uh, a few weeks ago, and he was talking about some of the progress that uh, Komodo Health is making in uh, shaping the healthcare data map. And that's one of the things in the healthcare space is uh, the data has just been all over the place and finally there's companies like Komodo that are aggregating all of the data organizing it creating a map where there's a clear relation between the different data sets and it's it's like we're touching the very uh, tip of the iceberg here in so many different industries where we're just getting the data in a decent place and um, I think you know the, the the stage is really set for a lot of really great applications of AI to emerge as a result of that. So um, yeah, totally echo your excitement um, on the AI and healthcare space and uh, the the other spaces you mentioned as well. Um, Well, Liz, that was uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining our uh, video podcast series.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me anytime.